Thanks for downloading this History Hub podcast. History Hub is based at the University College Dublin School of History. For more information, go to historyhub.ie. In this episode, Kevin Barry and his legacy, a talk given by Dermot Ferreter, Professor of Modern Irish History at UCD, to accompany the launch of the Kevin Barry Collections in the UCD Digital Library. The collections include material from two Barry archives, the Kevin Barry Papers and the papers of the Kevin Barry Memorial Committee. The collections are now publicly available on the UCD Digital Library at digital.ucd.ie. Kevin Barry's execution in November 1920 occurred towards the end of a bloody awful year in Ireland, which saw an intensification of the IRA's guerrilla campaign against British forces in the name of an Irish Republic. It also witnessed the recruitment of the Black and Tans and the Auxiliaries to give some kind of support to the Royal Irish Constabulary and to the British troops already in Ireland in their fight against the IRA. 1920 also witnessed the burning of Cork, the sack of Balbriggan, murderous riots in Northern Ireland as the state of Northern Ireland was born, and also the death of Terence McSweeney, another death that created an extraordinary impact. Another pivotal event was Bloody Sunday, the massacre in Croke Park, in retaliation for the assassination of British intelligence agents. Before the end of the year, there was also the Kilmichael ambush in Cork, when 18 auxiliaries were killed by the IRA. In the midst of all this mayhem, destruction and killing, why did Kevin Barry's death prove to be such an enduring and powerful one? An obvious answer is that Kevin Barry was a mere boy, and that was the description that was used at the time, and of course is still used today. If you look at the reaction of his UCD contemporaries, you can get a sense of the great shock and the great fear that existed about what this might represent and what it meant for Kevin and his friends and his family. Celia Shaw, for example, a fellow student at UCD at that time, kept a diary, and she referred to the surging fury that swept over the student body on hearing of the conviction of Kevin and the sentence and subsequently the reaction to his execution. What swept over students and indeed swept over the country was a sense of fury and shock. Many contemporary references were made to his courage and dignity in facing death. The governing body of UCD at that time was very careful to pass a resolution to that effect, paying tribute to the courage evident when Kevin Barry faced such an untimely death. Reports of the courage and dignity abounded also in the newspapers. You can see the Freeman's Journal, for example, of the 1st of November 1920, referring to Barry yielding his life for Ireland without flinching. He also exhorted his peers to continue the fight for the Irish Republic before he died, and that remained a rallying cry for some. But all of these elements are by no means the full story in relation to Ireland in 1920. Barry's execution was also hugely important because it was the first conviction under the Restoration of Order in Ireland Act, which had been introduced by the British military to try and restore order, as the title suggested. Barry was also the first who had been executed since 1916. The killings by the British were also about attempts to intimidate the Republican movement. There were numerous appeals for clemency to be shown, including from the Catholic Archbishop of Dublin, William Walsh, at that time. But John Anderson, the Undersecretary in Ireland, was absolutely adamant that such clemency would be to proclaim the helplessness of the law. 
And this is where you get a contemporary reflection on the importance of being able to show to the British troops in Ireland that these murderers in the IRA, or criminal gangs as they were referred to, were not going to get away with the crimes they had committed. And of course, the fateful day of the ambush, which led to the hanging of Kevin Barry, wasn't just about the death of Barry. It was about the death of four mere boys between the ages of 15 and 20, not just Barry, but the three British soldiers who were roughly the same age. Barry also became the first of 10 men who were hanged and buried in Mountjoy prison. Inevitably, Barry's killing secured his place in the pantheon of Irish nationalist heroes. But it's interesting for us as historians to look at what was being said behind the scenes on both the British and Irish sides. General Neville Macready, for example, the commander of the British forces in Ireland in 1920, referred during that period to the strongest weapon that Sinn Féin had, and it was the weapon of propaganda. The story of Kevin Barry's execution and the legacy is very much bound up with propaganda, as was the case in relation to the death of Terence McSweeney. McSweeney had died on hunger strike, a horrific death in Brixton Prison very shortly before the execution of Kevin Barry. McSweeney had written to Cahill Brewer while he was on hunger strike and suggested, if I die, I know the fruit will exceed the cost a thousand times. McSweeney was very alive to the propaganda value that would accrue as a result of his death. And there were many within the Republican movement and Sinn Féin who realised the importance of Kevin Barry's death for propaganda purposes. And that is a part of the war in Ireland in 1920. It's not just a military war. It's also a political war, a propaganda war. Britain miscalculated in relation to how the news of Barry's death might be received. Consider the coverage of the Manchester Guardian newspaper, for example, which was reporting on events in Ireland in a way that did not please the British military and political establishment. They were sending reporters to Ireland. They were reporting on what they saw. They were referring to the support that existed for the Republican movement. They were also reporting on the great mistakes that were being made by the British in Ireland at that time. The command and direction of the Irish War of Independence from a British point of view was becoming something of a disaster. And some journalists and newspaper proprietors were absolutely determined that there would be no repeat of the kind of censorship that operated during the period of the First World War when they were not permitted to report on what they saw in a very direct way. What was becoming clear was that the restoration of order in Ireland Act was a miserable failure. It did not restore order. In looking at the execution of Kevin Barry and the reaction to it, we need to be conscious of all those contexts. The restoration of order in Ireland Act was based on the premise that what the Republican revolutionaries were engaged in was a criminal conspiracy and that they would be hanged as criminals. But by February 1921, Neville Macready was admitting in private that the killings would not improve matters to any great extent. And he was correct in that assessment. The death of Kevin Barry did not mean that the war was over for his family, or indeed for UCD students, who were becoming increasingly militant around that time. A month after Macready's admission, there was the execution of another UCD student, Frank Flood, who was an engineering student and a friend of Kevin Barry's. Flood was executed along with five others on the charge of high treason following a raid on an auxiliary van in Drumcondra, Dublin. The raid did not result in any fatalities, but this is how it was reacted to 
And again, there were pleas for clemency on the grounds that this was not a proportionate punishment and that more executions would once again highlight the sense in which Britain was not handling its affairs in Ireland remotely effectively. There were 20,000 people outside Mountjoy Jail as those executions were about to be undertaken. There were those involved in the IRA campaign during that period who specifically used UCD to further their aims. Richard Mulcahy, for example, a medical student at UCD in 1917, was using an office in UCD whilst he was chief of staff of the IRA during the War of Independence. The director of chemicals for the IRA was Seamus O'Donovan, who was also using the premises of UCD in order to experiment with different kinds of explosives. And he recorded these experiments in his statement to the Bureau of Military History in the late 1940s. And what of the Barry family? What came after the execution of Kevin in 1920? We have some very vivid testimony from his sister, Cathy, because Cathy found herself in the Hammond Hotel in the centre of Dublin City at the outset of the Civil War as a member of Common Man. She was with five other members of Common Man. The hotel was a very temporary stronghold of the Republicans during the Civil War. And Cathy recorded that the men did not want her and members of Common Man in the hotel at that time. She said De Valera kind of carried me across the room and then turned around to see if there were any other neurotic women in the room. Cahal Brewer, she recorded, approved of me making tea in Bovril, but he did not approve of me filling sandbags. Of course, it was the filling of sandbags and more that Cathy wanted to do for the Irish Republic. Others, she recorded, were great sports and let me do heaps. But she finished by saying... I loved those three days at the end because I felt I was nearly as useful as a man. That is an example of the kind of testimony that has come into the public domain and has been digitised in recent times from the Bureau of Military History. It's also a reminder, I think, that there was a great challenge in delivering on the revolutionary promises. Recognising the sacrifices that had been made, the commitments to equality, the sense that so much potential was destroyed by the Civil War, that the commitment to equality was beginning to ring hollow, especially for women like Cathy. There was also the difficult question of what to do with the remains of the dead. These are the kinds of practical issues that a provisional government as early as 1922 is grappling with. We know, for example, from the archives that Michael Collins, as early as 1922, was suggesting that the bodies of the executed IRA men in Mount Joy needed to be taken out of the prison, that a prison was no place for these dead patriots. But of course, the savage civil war intervened. And that made it very difficult for any kind of a resolution to the issue of where those bodies should lie. There were various proposals in the 1930s and the 1940s in relation to removing the bodies, but there were political complications. The Barry family had nothing but disdain for Raymond de Valera, who was in the political ascendant during that period. They also refused to go along with any official plans on the grounds that the aim that Kevin Barry had died for, a 32-county republic, had not been achieved. To a certain extent, time healed. The passing of the revolutionary generation was another crucial factor. But it was not until 2001 that the formal disinterment of these bodies and their repatriation to Glasnevin, accompanied by a state funeral, occurred.
That was a very significant event in 2001. There were many displays of even-handedness. Prayers were said, for example, in Mount Joy, not just for Kevin Barry, but also for the soldiers who had been killed in 1920, and the three soldiers who were killed as a result of the ambush that Kevin Barry was involved in. Harold Washington, Thomas Humphreys, and Marshall Whitehead. These were not names that had been heard at all in previous decades. They were, before that you could say, faceless names and numbers. Taoiseach Bertie Ahern at the time, in 2001, acknowledged that when it came to the legacy of Kevin Barry, Fianna Fáil did not own it, that no political party owned the legacy of Barry. During his speech, Ahern mentioned Eamon de Valera, but he also mentioned Michael Collins, Arthur Griffith, and Desmond Fitzgerald, who had been a very active propagandist on the Republican side during the War of Independence and subsequently took the pro-treaty side. And his son, Garrett Fitzgerald, looked on stoically in 2001 as these speeches were being made. It reminded me of the lines from a poem by Padraigo Halpin, published in 1948 in the National Student, the UCD Student magazine. His poem about Kevin Barry included a line, He gave not to you or I, we do not own him. That question of ownership is very germane to where we are now in relation to a period of intense commemoration. It's a question that always surfaces, this question of ownership during periods of commemoration. But we are heading into a particularly intensive period. Commemoration is partly about grappling with the legacy and the consequences of this period of Irish history. The challenge for us as historians is to keep a focus on the history and on the context on the layers of Irish and British experiences, on the nuance, and of course, on the sources. Rather than being preoccupied with contrivance and politics and selectivity, we need to be conscious of the history. We need to be conscious of the evidence. There was a particular essay that Kevin Barry worked on as a student, and that essay was called The Uses of History but we're also very well aware that there are many essays that can be written on the abuses of history. And that is something that will be debated in the coming years. We don't need pride to be bullied out of existence, and we should resist that in relation to how we remember Kevin Barry and his comrades. We can acknowledge today, I think, the veracity of the assessment that was made as far back as 1936 by Brian O'Higgins, when, in another tribute, he described Kevin Barry as a boy in years, but a man in fearless faith. But that very description, fearless faith, is also an indication of the difficulty of grappling with the legacy of Kevin Barry. Fearless faith could have devastating consequences during this period. Many became victims as a result of fearless faith. I know UCD will play a very important role in relation to clarifying the context for this period and ensuring that we do not obscure and we do not distort. Crucially, I know UCD will play a role in showcasing the sources. There are so many sources in UCD related to the revolutionary period. It is fair to assert 
that you cannot understand the revolutionary period in Ireland unless you have some knowledge of the collections that exist in the UCD library and the UCD archives. Knowledge of those collections is absolutely essential to any nuanced appreciation of what happened in Ireland during that period and why it happened. What we have in the Kevin Barry collection is not, of course, voluminous. How could it be? The archive of a mere boy of 18. But that makes it all the more precious. And it is essential that what we have, we showcase. That what we have, we digitize and contextualize to bring this material alive and to make it accessible.